Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. The incredible Ursula K. Le Guin won the National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in 2014. In her much-shared speech, she noted that hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine real grounds for hope. And now her estate has launched a new literary prize, for imaginative and optimistic works. We here at Breaking the Glass Slipper agree with Le Guin that there is a need for speculative fiction that is uplifting as well as the ever-popular dystopian pessimism. And it would seem that many readers agree too. Recent years have seen, or so it feels, an increase in publication of optimistic stories. And as the world crumbles around us, uh, sorry to be glass half empty, <laughs> but it's no wonder that we are all craving something that delivers a few warm and fuzzies. In this episode, we are going to explore all things hopeful speculative fiction. And to that end, we are joined by Rika Aoki, whose novel Light from Uncommon Stars was published in the summer. So Rika, we are really happy to have you here. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm really glad to be here. My name is Rika Aoki, and I just came out with Light from Uncommon Stars. It just came out from Tor. It was released last month in September. And I live in Los Angeles. I am a teacher and a writer. I even teach some self-defense to the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center and the Trans-Latina Coalition here. I've been writing for most of my life mainly in queer and small presses. And with Light from Uncommon Stars, this is my jump into a large press and more opportunities to meet readers and have so much fun just talking about stories and philosophy and all that sort of good stuff like I'm doing right here. I'm just really tickled and uh, I'm looking forward to a great conversation. One of the things we wanted to kick off with is that your characters in your novel suffer many injustices and some really terrible things. And yet your book feels hopeful rather than despairing, which is what some people might think when they read about what some of your characters go through. So <laughs> was tone important to you when you set out to write the novel or was it something that kind of developed as you were writing? Oh, no. From the very beginning, I wanted to write a story where people who were like me, who uh, are my chosen family, who might have my same uh, background, uh, an approximately similar gender identity, or uh, some of the same stories, can actually be the main characters and, and have their happy-ish endings or as happy as things can be. The problem is many times when people are writing a character who might be trans or a person of color, or for that matter, a woman, 
they are often seen as supporting characters and, and meant to teach the main character a lesson. And a lot of times they die this tragic death and they show how grim life can be and how we should value the moments we have on this earth. When you think about uh, rent, you, you see that. You see a lot of this idea that a trans or a person of color, these sorts of characters exist only to to present an allegory or, or to and are sacrificed uh you know very beautiful sacrifices but sacrificed in order for the main character to learn some sort of lesson about being human and uh after a while one gets kind of tired of this after after umpteen times where a cisgendered white male writer will ask, you know, how do you write a transgender character? I think you're so brave. I think you're so courageous. You just want to eventually just tell them to shut up. And I'm going to now write my own story and give these beautiful people a, a story that shows them as the center of attention and if there's any optimism or any bounties from from providence you know anything coming in any any good luck any good fortune it's going to go on them because it's my damn book and i get to do what i want so it was very very important it was in fact integral to this piece that i didn't sacrifice my own family we have our microphones on mute so while you're talking so the audience can't hear that i laughed at that it's my damn book <laughs> i want it that's awesome. <laughs> we have also had an episode previously where we were talking about how women often feel the need to make positive representations of ourselves in books, in films and so on, because we feel like the men aren't doing us justice. And again, you know, this is part of own voices, you know, just as you say, you know, you didn't want to kind of harm your chosen family and it's it can be hard then to kind of show the full gamut because then you're like okay well say you know you mentioned the the kind of trope of you know the gay character gets killed off in order to teach the protagonist a lesson or to make them feel things or you know and it's you know you have to then be really careful then because you want to then explore all the different kinds of things that people can experience, do experience. They can be flawed. They can be perfect. They can be downright horrible, horrible people and yet still be in the community which you want to represent. I mean, how do you feel about trying to represent that full spectrum while not falling into the trap of or increasing the amount of negative stories that are around uh, marginalized groups? I don't think that I'm as concerned with representing. I think you're giving me way too much credit here. I, uh, I'm not trying to represent. I, I'm bored. <laughs> I come from, you know, I read these stories and they don't, they don't represent the characters that, uh, I want to see. They're always the same old tropes and same old characters. Marvel makes a superhero movie. You know that character is going to be white and his first name is going to be Chris. <laughs> and you just, after a while, it's boring. And um, so when I'm writing a story, I'm not writing a story to represent or to fight against um, the hegemony. Uh, frankly, the hegemony has enough problem. It just, I don't have to deal with that. 
I'm just trying to tell a good story. And what I gain from that is I don't have the burden of representation. I write a good story and I cover what I want to cover. I enjoy what I want to enjoy. I hope the reader is not bored. And if I do a good job, uh, my writing teacher told me this a long time ago, you know, he told me, you don't have to get it all down in the first poem or in the first story. If you do a good job, people will want another one. And so the way I operate is if I do a good job, it might not even be me. It, it might be another trans or queer or, you know, gay writer, you know, Everita might write something. And together we we collectively create a, a patchwork, a quilt of, of a representative literary uh, tapestry. But my job isn't to oversee the project. I am writing as a very finite and in some ways very petty human being. I am just sick and tired of seeing the same old, same old. And I have some opportunity to write my own stories that make me smile. So I'm going to do that and invite readers to come along for the ride. Well, your story made me smile, so as one reader. (laughs) Awesome, awesome, awesome. And it did also make me crave a lot of donuts. But Yes. (laughs) I wanted to pick up on um, what you were saying there about being bored, because when we were obviously researching this and I was having a quick look at what other people thought on Goodreads, I found this um, wonderful summary of it. Defiantly joyful adventure set in Californian San Gabriel Valley with cursed violins, Faustian bargains and queer alien courtship over fresh made donuts. So I thought that was really lovely. And I just wanted to take this idea of curses and Faustian bargains and things like that and say, you just said that you were bored with what you were reading. I mean, was the the idea of curses and, and bargains and all this kind of thing, was this something that really captured your imagination? You went, do you know what? I can write something much better than that. None of the ones out there are good enough for me. Or was it that it was something you started creating the characters and then you went, oh, I know, they're they're the sort of characters who would be cursed. (laughs) You know, which kind of came first? I think a lot of my obsession with souls has to do with my being transgender, actually. In the early days, uh, in the early aughts, there were a lot of discussions. Uh, A lot of trans and gender theory was being hashed out. And there was much conversation around, do, does one have a female soul? The idea of a female soul in a man's body. Now, obviously, those terms are outdated, but at the time, that's what we were working with. And what is your soul like? To me, that enmeshed so neatly with characters who are stealing souls. And of course, a character as infernal as she was, who was hunting souls and looking for souls could also be exactly the character who could validate a trans person and say, of course you're a woman, I see your soul. Even if it was a predatory trans, a predatory relationship, it could be strangely validating. And I found that really seductive. I wanted to go in there and I wanted to, to write that story. And I had already thought that I wanted to write about people I knew in my neighborhood. So donut shops and violin competitions and very, very huge economic disparities all filtered into 
uh, into the story. You know, even sort of the banality of living in a suburb and then seeing how, um, how magical it is if you just let it be. These are all things that I wanted to talk about. You know, on this day-to-day banality, for example, for a trans woman to go to the store and to buy eggs and cheese and apples and, and vegetables and have the cashier say, thank you, ma'am. Most people who are cisgender will just think it's normal. But for a trans woman who might not ever have done this before as their true chosen self, this is a very magical moment. So who's to say what's magical or not, or, or local, or not. It, it, it depends. And so when it comes to souls, uh, sure, Shizuka Satomi is evil. But, but because she's so single-mindedly hunting for souls, she is exactly the voice that Katrina needs to hear. I love this because it is you've presented such a nuanced discussion of of the the subject that we're talking about tonight you know which is this idea of optimism um against particularly I I mean I I was thinking of this question because I'm sure you've noticed the last few years, and and we are coming out of it now. But when I first started publishing, I kind of published my, you know, fairly classic optimistic fantasy right into the middle of the grimdark movement, where everyone was talking about a nihilistic world, you know, where the characters were were really quite unpleasant, and they were struggling fruitlessly um, to to kind of achieve something that would last and very often these were quite kind of pessimistic stories that maybe didn't make you feel so good about yourself um, and I pers- I mean there are obviously people plenty of people really like this but I'm personally quite relieved that we're actually seeing some stories that you know are moving away from mm-hmm. that worldview I think it's really important to offer hope and optimism um so that led me to thinking about whether um from a, a novel a novelistic uh, a kind of stylistic point of view when we get down to kind of writing the nitty-gritty of a novel the tension and such whether you think that that hope and optimism can deliver as potent and compelling a story as this this trend to kind of go down a more bleak nihilistic route no not at all if that's the kind of story the readers are expecting uh, sometimes a reader just wants this catharsis saying life is shit and i know it's shit and it's shit and it's shit and of course, they're going to gravitate to this sort of story. They're going to gravitate towards life is shit and then you die. We're all shit. And I don't care how we try, it's shit. And, and, and off they go. And somebody who is there in their lives, that's the story that they need. However, you can't live there. And, um, you know, when we talk about nihilistic energy, in some ways, isn't that a bit of an oxymoron? You know, energy is creative and nihilism is, well, it's not. And this is something that I think is not just in science fiction and fantasy. I see it um, in a lot of, you know, what might be called lit fic and in a lot of other genres, this idea of nihilism being somehow more real. And if you look around, there are a lot of reasons and justifications for nihilism. Uh, However, again, 
that doesn't mean that things sometimes don't work out and, and that things can sometimes resolve in a good way and that there can be cause for optimism. But this takes a little bit more work and it takes a little bit more imagination. Case in point, let's, let's do a really simple uh, a really simple sort of thought experiment. Let's say, and I'm sure you and all of us, we've had crushes on people. Let's say that you have a crush on somebody and you're pining for that person. If you write a story that the, you talk to this person, you confess to this person, and they say no, you can go back to the exact same setting that you started with at the beginning and add on just, it really sucks, life is bad, and you, you don't have to re-describe your refrigerator, you don't have to re-describe anything, you're still in your own world, and then you can just sort of express your dissatisfaction and, and talk about how crappy things are, and, and we're good. But let's say that person says yes, just as likely. Now as a writer, you have to go on dates. You have to change your life. Not only that, you have to transform the character. You have to say to yourself, what would I do if something good happened to me? You might have to change your curtains. You're going to taste a whole different restaurant because that person wants to take you somewhere. You have to world build now. And that takes a little bit more time. And that takes a little bit more belief in yourself. It's easy to affirm where you are. It is much, much harder to create change in your story and in your character. But I think it's necessary. So it's not, it's not a situation of which is more realistic. You, you ask somebody out, they can say yes, they can say no. But when they say yes, the optimistic option now the demands on you as the storyteller are far greater. It's interesting. I was reading an interview with Kieran Culkin randomly um, the other day. And well, he was talking about how it's much easier to sort of say no to things or stress about things and then just say, oh, no, I just rather not. But when you say yes, that's when actually life happens. So it feels very much the same kind of thing. <laughs> Say yes and story happens. <laughs> and from a writer's standpoint, it is so, you know, if I write something saying, you know, how terrible this world is, I, I am pretty sure people will agree with me. Not everyone, but many, many, many people will agree with me because I'm not really creating anything. I'm ripping down what exists. But the moment I do create something, it becomes easier to to criticize and to knock down. And it takes a lot more work to make your story robust. You managed to create optimism and an optimistic tone in the face of things like the demise of an entire empire and trading souls to the devil. <laughs> and you earlier said that Mr. Tomy is, is evil. And I, I mean, I, I, take offense at that. I, I didn't think she was evil. She's wonderful. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's the point. We, we end up, you know, as readers, we end up sympathizing with her and rooting mm -hmm. for her and despite what she's done and, you know, reading it, I, I just, I felt like this was a slight, uh, like a really incredible sleight of hand that, you mm -hmm. know, you were playing a trick with the readers that you're managing to stay positive, manage to create optimism 
in the face of all these really dire things going on and and quite morally grey or just plain morally bad things going on, I mean, how did you still manage to keep it optimistic with all of that going on? Well, one of the keys is at the end and at the risk of spoiling the book, when they go off to this planet and and, and she's playing Handel and there's this line that, you know, they spoke of their sins, I spoke of mine or something to that effect. Who among us hasn't fucked up royally? I think about some of my past relationships. I did things that I'm not proud of. Things were done to me that were horrible, but you know, there were times where I gave as good as I've got. There are many regrets. And as people who try to be compassionate and and try to learn from our pasts, we can't help but relive that remorse and that guilt over and over. And for some people, it can paralyze them. And it's ironic that a lot of times the people who have the most heart are the ones who feel the most paralyzed by knowing and remembering the harm that they've done. Also, many of us are are victims and have been on the receiving end of harm. I come from a household where there was some abuse. And so there are all these horrible events and there are all these experiences that are just part of life. What do we do with that? Uh, So what I wanted to show is I wanted to be very, very straightforward with you know, Shizuka really did take these souls to hell and they are burning right now and they are in pain and she did it for very selfish reasons. Um, You can say, you know, that in some cases she wasn't quite aware of what was going on and and that's true too. But at the end of the day, you know, six souls, they might not have been the greatest souls, but there they are. And here she is. Does she give up now? Does she stop living? Does she, does she take all of her talent and all of her skill and all of her beauty and all of her, you know, ability to create uh, and instill music in somebody else and, and bury it in guilt? Or does she, despite all of that, do her best? And I think we've all been there where we realize we've effed up, but we still have to do our best. And by balancing those two, I think I was able to to create a really nice sweet spot for Shizuka to, to live. You, you feel for her because, I mean, she's done horrible things and the reasons behind those horrible things are somewhat justifiable, not quite in the same way we can like own up to some of our own problems. It's like, yeah, I had reason, but I really shouldn't have done that. And now what? Well, uh, there's a student that needs teaching. There are songs that need playing. Uh, here we go. I want a donut. It does feel like two sides of the same coin going on in a lot of the novel with an acceptance of yourself for who you are. <laughs> but also, in order to do that, you have to have forgiveness for yourself, no matter how, you know, as you say, no matter how badly we fuck up, we've got to be able to forgive ourselves. Otherwise, we will never be able to accept ourselves and love ourselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The And that, to me, is what I wanted to give to the reader. I, When I speak to the reader, I 
And when I'm writing a story, I, I want the reader to feel validated, you know, especially if the story's supposed to be validating them, which I already said it was, I, I want them to not have to put on their perfect face to come to my novel. I, I want them to see that my, uh, my characters are as dysfunctional and messed up as they've been in some of the worst times of their lives as well. That's the only way that I know how to elevate a reader or an audience is by meeting them and saying, we might not be exactly the same, but here's some of my story and maybe we have something in common and can we move from here? But you have to be with the reader, you have to be respectful and you have to be honest because if you're just saying, you know, I love you, darling, I love you all, they're going to pick up on that immediately, especially because in this society, we are awash in people who want to just sell things. Uh, you know, I want people to buy my book, but this is not, uh, you know, selling them um, bad real estate somewhere horrible. This is me saying, I believe in this this experience you're about to have and the story you're about to read. I hope it makes your life better. Yeah, I would like to point out that if anyone thinks me saying things like, oh, you know, you learn to love yourself, none of it is cheesy. <laughs> um, it's very well done. And at no point does it feel like that. So <laughs> just to clarify. And I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that I took it that way at all. No, not at all. No, no. <laughs> Thinking about actually the kind of nitty gritty of writing a novel, this conversation is so nu nuanced and so people are complicated. And we've just talked about how how complicated people's interactions are and people's inner lives are. How do you keep the tension level high in a novel, which is actually it's it's quite character driven, you know. It explores inside of people's heads, and people could argue that's harder to do than with with a, a novel that is more kind of plot driven. Mm -hmm. Well, in order to keep the tension for me, it was important to build backstory. It was important to be very unblinking in how I spoke about Katrina's past and even Shizuka and Lon's past, and to show that they all have experiences that were visceral. There were tastes and, and there were there were smells. There was they could they could there was burning. There 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 were things that were were going on that connect them to the physical concrete world. I was I used a lot of that as an anchor. Also whenever I wrote about a place. I liked to talk about what it had been, where it is, that there's this shop here and there's that shop there, all trying to make my setting and my characters as believable as possible. Once we get that believability, then there's a vulnerability that comes with that. They're getting hurt. They're making mistakes. Something can screw up. The donuts don't sell. And these are things that I think we all as, as human beings understand that there's a risk to, to living. And by doing that and by recognizing that risk and by having my characters fail sometimes, my plan then was when there were occasions for them to shine, those celebrations were something to celebrate. They were earned. They were believable. 
And, and so I wanted to keep the, te- I, I tried to keep the tension by showing that these characters playing the best music of their lives, doing the absolute best that they can, making the best possible donuts, were still living in a place that if they made a mistake, there would be penalties. And that's just the way the world operates. I don't teach my class this afternoon. There are penalties. I mean, we just have to do this. So, sorry, this is a dreadful tangent. I just wanted to ask you, though, because I don't, I, I don't know, you just don't encounter it in, in speculative fiction novels that often. But I'm, I'm so interested in the music element. And as a musical person yourself, how mm-hmm. did you bring music to your, to your novel to, to I mean I mean I play the piano um but it's not something that I've ever thought about uniting um with my other passion well the violin and I just got to know each other at, over the course of writing the book I mean the uh I didn't know how to make anything with the violin a few years ago I had to learn how to sort of play it in order to write this book uh I'm primarily a pianist just as you are but there's an interesting thing about music in both the Asian community and in the trans community, and that has to do with language and voice. I'm going to take a quick tangent. You know, do you do you know why it's easy for Asians to run donut shops, Lucy? I do not. One of the reasons why so many Asians gravitate towards uh, things like selling donuts is very little English is necessary. There's no need to decipher a menu. They're pointing. You know, you only need to count up to 12 or 13. We're, we're good to go. And so it becomes a way for new immigrants to be able to transact and, and have conversation with people despite language limitations. A lot of times music will work the same way where playing piano or playing violin allows one to transcend or work around the limits or, you know, the facility of language and lets them communicate feelings and insights without constraint. With the piano, it's amazing to play and I enjoy playing the piano. I I love the different voicings, but there are some things that the piano does not do well. And one of them is mimic the human voice. We can kind of fake a singing tone, but we really can't do it with the piano. With the violin, we can. And that's something that I really fell in love with, with the violin. Uh, There were some times where I felt I was cheating on the piano because I was spending so much time playing the violin. As a trans woman, as being transgender, dysphoria is more than sight. Dysphoria is also sound, especially if you enjoy music and and you enjoy voices and you enjoy words. I have to resign myself to the truth that I will never be able to use a full range of, you know, full registers of my voice. You know, I will never be able to sing as high as I wish I could sing. I, I'm, I'm not going to be doing, you know, I'm not going to be doing anything from Tosca anytime soon. But with the violin, I can. Uh, the violin can sing and it's a level playing field and I can play whatever I want. I can go as high as I want. I can cry on the violin. I can do all kinds of things with the violin that I only wish I could do with my voice. And so bringing the music and bringing the the instrument into the book 
became very natural. At first, perhaps it was a bit of a, a conceit because we're talking about Asians and we're talking about classical music, but it eventually evolved into something that was very organic and, and I think very, um, for me at least, very intimate. Oh, thank you. It's just really fascinating because we, we just don't really, this is this is something we don't talk about very often on, on these episodes, you know, music as language and music as communication. So, you know, I thought it was a perfect opportunity <laughs> to, to have your insight. This book was written before Tor picked it up. And when my agent suggested bringing this book to Tor, I kind of, well, I you know, she's my agent, so she does what she wants. But inside I'm going, I'm writing a book and there's Bartok in it. How on earth, Tor? But the folks at Tor have been spectacular and they've been wonderful about, I think they got it. I think they understood what I was trying to do. The The editorial staff at Tor is uh, is stellar. And also I'm glad that other readers have, have noticed and, and have talked about the musical aspects of the book. So maybe there will be more music and science fiction coming up. It would be fun to have that trend happen. Maybe. I was a cellist back in, in the day. I haven't played since I was in high school, but I used to spend hours practicing playing Star Wars on my cello. So we all, you know, there's there's always been for me a connection with classical or beautiful music and sci-fi and fantasy. So uh, I think there should be more of it. <laughs> Absolutely. When you think about the you think about that relationship between classical music and film. It should be, there should be a greater music presence in, in books as well. Absolutely. And you think even beyond classical music, you think about gaming music and you think about how that's evolved and how some of our brightest and most brilliant composers are writing music for games. I think music lets us speak, music lets us dream, music lets us sing, music lets us see things. It's, uh, it's something that I, I think I'll always write about. It seems like in a lot of stories, it's like being good, you have to work to be good, but anyone can be bad. Mm-hmm. And I always come back to, you know, it's either Star Wars or Star Trek with me. You know, I love them both. But, you know, you have Yoda always telling uh, Anakin about how, like, he needs to let go of hate and he needs to do all these things to, to keep the dark side at bay. But it's never do these things in order to be good or appreciate the good or to, you know, it's it's just stay away from the dark. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's why it, Star Wars and Star Trek are vastly different cultures. Yeah, that is true. Star Trek is optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> For the most part, it is. You, you know, they're, although, you know, it, it got... It got darker later, but that was because they had a whole different creative crew behind it. Yeah, the initial vision was very optimistic. Mm. Now, going into this sort of thing, you know, where it's like, I had to not only sort of prove my chops in writing trans and queer and very gritty things, I also had to, as a new tour writer, kind of proved my chops as a science as somebody who understood science fiction and fantasy and 
that's where I did a lot of sleight of hand. If you want to think about sleight of hand, that's where I did a lot of sleight of hand, where I would toss in Star Trek and Star Wars references and occasionally play with them to show that I've read a few things and to let the readers who might come from science fiction and fantasy understand that uh, I will be here writing my next couple novels in in science fiction and fantasy. I love the genre. I have many, many years in, enjoying it. And so it was not just writing to validate my identity as a queer or a trans person, but to validate my identity as somebody who loves science fiction. Because... I was combining different genres. I had to make sure that the genres felt solid, that it didn't feel as if I was appropriating them because uh, the science fiction and fantasy communities, both of them and together, deserve far more respect than that. And I wanted to let some of my affection for both genres and sort of combined genres um, show. I was deathly afraid of people in the science fiction community or the fantasy community feeling slighted, uh, even more so than I was about the trans or the queer community because, well, you know, in, in some ways I felt like I was, I was coming in and uh, you know, also the classical music community. I wanted to make sure that I got the music right. Um, but so you'll notice in, in the book, I, if there's, you know, allusions to Star Trek, Star Wars, some of the other, major franchises, as well as some of the the writing style and the language of good, good old-fashioned space opera, those were the places where I felt I, I had to do the best possible job. They might look like the comedic parts. They might look like parts where, you know, the space battle and things like that. They might look like parts that must have been a rollicking good time to write, but those were actually the points of the highest stress because people care about these things and I wanted to give those readers that kind of respect that's fair I mean I'd say as much as I love the community we're in there's also quite a culture of sort of backlash and attacking people when they don't like something as well so (laughs) I feel like it is although on one hand quite lovely to feel like you're in and amongst your people it can also be a little bit closed off and not open to to new things so I can really appreciate that a lot of people come into science fiction or gaming or fantasy you know or anime or manga for that matter because they feel outside and this is a place that and and a community and a type of art that speaks to them not everyone but a lot of people do come as come in because this is a haven and these these forms, these genres are oases of acceptance. They're havens for them. And I wanted to respect that. I wanted to ask you, because a, a lot of my favorite kind of recent optimistic spec fic mm-hmm. has come from authors who identify as queer. Like you mentioned early mm-hmm. earlier. Everina Maxwell's Winter's Orbit, which both Lucy and I Way! Just, Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We were in bits of right. that and like, you know, <laughs> shipping the hell out of it. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> That's such a great book. Such a, such a good book. Such 
such an amazing book. It was so much fun. It really was. But like TJ Klune's The House in the Cerulean Sea, I just read mm-hmm. and that was like just a big hug. And mm-hmm. you know, any of the any of the books by Becky Chambers as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're all these quite optimistic, comforting, just wonderful reads. And and I was mm-hmm. wondering like why do you do you have any thoughts about why there's so much optimism, which at least from my perspective, seems to be coming from the queer community and traditionally marginalized areas. Because our lives are shit. I mean, in all seriousness, because, you know, we wake up, it's like, you know, you look at these nihilistic tropes where, you know, somebody has to be brave. It's, it's life or death. And there are these masses who hate us. These zombies are coming who are never, who I can't, talk to, but actually just want to eat my brain. Guess what? That's being queer. That's just how it is. So when we're writing stories, it's like, that's not the creatively challenging stuff. It's just, yeah, you know, I mean, I I can put on home, you know, it's like, look, homophobes in zombie costumes, that there's no challenge there. And it's, again, tedious. It's it's boring. It, it, It lacks imagination. Because for so many queer folks, so many uh, marginalized people living in an alien world that hates you is Earth 2021 with this current political climate. So I, when, when I write and I want to speculate, sometimes the greatest piece of fantastical speculative fiction is to go have donuts and have a civil time with people with no fear. This is just as speculative when you consider where we come from. I think that anybody who thinks that there's anything new to have people hating you and to feeling like the last sane person left on earth and everybody just wants to, you know, wipe out your species and and you think there's anything new to that, you must come from a good place. Because you certainly don't come from the queer people I know. And I say that with all the compassion, but there's there's a really, really steep curve when you start becoming queer or you start becoming trans or you start becoming a person of color. Civilization looks a lot different. And so the fiction that we produce will spring from that different terrain and that different landscape. And so it's going to manifest itself differently. So this doesn't surprise me at all. In fact... It's just kind of fun because when these books come out, a lot of times people will review these books and there will be a lot of befuddlement. But what I find beautiful about somebody like, you know, T.J. Klune or Everina or Becky is they still recognize the brilliance in their stories. And that is what gives me hope in not just our community and in readers, but, you know, that this, uh, this thing we always tell ourselves about books helping the world get along that might actually be true see now i just have conflicting feelings because on the one hand i'd love to see more optimistic books but if the price for that is shit lives maybe i'd rather the depressing books and just having a really wonderful life 
Well, you know, once they find out that these books sell, everyone's going to hop on the bandwagon. It's going to be fine. But no, just seriously, the reason this is coming from, you know, this even goes way back to E.M. Forster and Morris. You know, these books where, you know, back there, Forster saying, I wanted to write a book where the gay character did, you know, didn't die at the end. And, and, and these books, if you read Cerulean Sea and if you read something from, uh, if you read Winter's Orbit, there's a defiance in there. There's, there's a, there's underneath that all, there's a, there's a spirit that's revolutionary. There's a spirit that's, there's, I'm not going to say it's anger because I, you know, because um, TJ and Evrian and Becky aren't here, but you can see underneath there's this feeling of, we've had it with the norm. We're going to write something you know, if we're supposed to be speculative fiction, why don't we speculate on things that we want to speculate about that, that will lead to a better life for all of us? Uh, you know, let's look at Star Trek, okay? So you look at Star Trek, and um, we're going to work really, really hard to work for a universe where your chances as a trans woman or as a queer person to become a starship captain are less than, you know, becoming, you know, a professional rugby player? I mean, are we going to work so hard and yet be so backwards? And I think that there's this feeling that if it's going to be a universe that's a utopia, it has to be a utopia for all of us. It has to be someplace where we all can play. Uh, I'm not going to wait two or three hundred years and, you know, gather a lightsaber and suddenly run into same the same patriarchal modes that I had back in the 1800s. I'm not going to, I, I don't buy having a school of wizards that, you know, where, um, you know, if you change form as an animagus, you have to register. I, I think that trust and compassion and uh, wisdom and all of those benefits really need to be applied and prosperity need to be applied to all of us. And that's the future that I think is truly speculative. Otherwise, we're just um, sort of projecting our existing prejudices to the future. And just as parents who project horrible things to their children usually end up doing things that they really shouldn't be doing, it's the same way as we who write. We want to make sure that we don't project our own prejudices forward. Uh, you can't get away from it because, you know, we're human beings. We can't get away from it. But I think we should acknowledge the danger and work around and work with it and do our best, just like Shizuka's doing. Just, we, know we're, we know we've done some horrible things, but let's just do our best. But selling of souls is, is not recommended. Just <laughs> not, not, <laughs> not recommended, but sometimes understandable. <laughs> <laughs> just make sure you get a good price. <laughs> <laughs> well i think that finishing on um selling souls is not recommended but sometimes understandable has to be my favorite quote of the evening so no thank you so much for for joining us it's been great and honestly um i i really do love this kind of trend of getting some more optimistic books and I don't have quite as shit a time of it as a, a straight white cis woman. Well, 
but uh, I still really appreciate the, these books that just make me feel good. <laughs> but this is the, this is the whole thing. The right now, the way the world is, um, there's really margins all the way around, and even for people who have traditionally been uh, maybe a little sheltered from some of the cruelties the world tosses at. Um, at marginalized communities, we're all feeling it right now because these are stressful times. When there were, you know, during uh, during a war time, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it, it's bad for everybody. And in a time like this, a time of pandemic, uh, it's bad for everybody. A time when our world is, uh, and our client and climate change in this world is threatening our existence. It's not going to matter that we're trans or that we're queer or that we're white or that we're cis, it's, it's going to suck. What I think that publishing work from marginalized people can do is, I don't want to be so lofty, but educate people into the stories and the narratives of hope in the face of some horrible obstacles because we've been here. We know how to do this. If I am going to, uh, if I'm going to go visit the Queen, I'm going to talk to people who are used to being part of, you know, who understand the protocol and understand the customs of hanging out with the Queen. If you are facing a future and where you are dealing with threats to your physical existence and changes beyond your control and a possibly more hostile environment, well, then you find the people who have been operating under those conditions and the stories that they tell. And hopefully you can learn something from them. And uh, this is why I am grateful to be writing, not just to queer people, but to straight people, because I love humans. And if my experience as, as trans or as being um, marginalized or in some cases even discriminated against and abused and endangered, if, if they help you understand where you are, then that makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Oh, it, that was just such a lovely way of wrapping it up, you know, like... Meg also, you know, how how should we wrap this episode up? And I don't think you any one of us could have wrapped it up any better than that. I think it was that was a beautiful thing to say. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. And thank you just for just like supporting my work and supporting TJ's work and Everina and, you know, Becky's. Although it's not that hard to, to support their work because they're so good. But anyway, all the best to you and I and 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 thank you. <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.